afternoon, guys. This is a very, very impromptu podcast we're doing this afternoon. As you know, we generally live stream on Monday and Wednesday evenings, but uh, with such a unfortunately monumental decision that was brought down by the Supreme Court today, we definitely had to come on and talk about it. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, the reactions so far have uh, been fairly uh, consistent with what we would expect but that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, there needs to be dramatic action uh, taken as soon as possible. And, you know, we're looking for people who, uh, we're looking for leaders, if you will, people that can really speak to the magnitude of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And right now, uh, there's not a lot of them out there, but we're very fortunate enough today to have somebody who uh, has been in the fight for a very long time, um, was obviously uh, very young when Roe v. Wade became law and probably didn't think uh, one would have to live to the day to see it uh, replaced. But there's obviously many reasons as to how we got there and uh, hopefully we'll be able to discuss them at great length and figure out exactly what's gonna be the best uh, course of action going forward. She is a best-selling author and of course was former candidate for president of the United States in 2020. You know where you love her, Marianne Williamson. Welcome back to Generational Change. Oh, thank you, Peter. Nice to see you. Wish it could be under better circumstances, but as you know, this is uh, this is a very somber day for a lot of people, and a lot of people who, uh, you know, quite frankly, don't really have uh, don't really have a lot that they can do regarding this circumstance. We already saw, you know, as soon as the Supreme Court brought down the hammer, Missouri has already uh, solidified their position to make sure that Roe v. Wade uh, no longer exists. Um, obviously, we know that a lot of the Democratic-controlled states. Uh, heard that Illinois is one in particular that's already looking to codify uh, Roe v. Wade at the state level. If you were in the position of, let's say, President Biden right now, um, how would you be addressing the nation and what would be your first course of action to try to deal with this horrific situation? Well, as he said in his speech today, he can't do anything via executive order. But the Democrats right now should be talking about ending the filibuster. That's certainly what the Republicans would be doing if something like this was on the other foot. Um, the Democrats, as we know, have had years that they could have codified this. Uh, Obama had said that he was going to. Uh, we've been receiving, uh, Democrats have been receiving fundraising letters for years saying that we had to send money to the Democrats because, after all, Roe v. Wade could be on the chopping block. Um, the response of Democrats today on a federal level has certainly been disappointing. Uh, the president is stunned. He's sad. I appreciate that. He gave us a history lesson, which was probably good for some people. But other than on the state level, like you were saying, Letitia James came out very strongly in New York. Some of the uh, Democratic governors like Newsom, like Pritzker, are going to do what they can. I think one of the ways that this is a political awakening for people is that we do recognize on a day like today the importance of our state elections and state legislatures. And too many people, you know, particularly on the left, Peter, have been always very concentrated on presidential elections, um, less so on the midterms, and almost treating state elections like they're an afterthought. Well, it's very clear now that a state election should never be seen as an afterthought. I thought that the House Repo House Democrats uh, standing on the steps of uh, the Capitol singing God Bless America couldn't be more tone deaf. I thought that Nancy Pelosi reading us a poem, if anything she was going to read us, I wish it would have been her resignation letter. Um, 
And uh, so where we are now, you know, as you were saying before, it's a very somber day. And I think that there are two definite categories of conversation here. One is what needs to be done. And that's what we should be hearing about from the Democratic leadership is what needs to be done. I think for us as citizens, there's, this is profound on a psychological and emotional level. I think people you were mentioning before how I was, I was very young. I was a little girl, really, but I do remember that it being a big deal. Um, I have been saying to young pe- young women particularly, and this this is true of many people my age, you guys don't know. You know, I remember in the 2016 election, a woman who was going to vote third party saying to me, you can't make me vote my fear, Marianne. And I remember my response to her was, in this case, I wish you would. People couldn't imagine that this day would happen. And Peter, and I think you and I have had a conversation about this before. What this is going to do, the changes in this society, first of all, we've already talked about, you know, a woman's choice of what to do with her body. This is about a woman's choice of what to do with the next 18 years of her life. This is about a woman's agency to make decisions about her entire life. And this is going to change a lot of the vectors and the the cultural uh, uh, the sexual issues in the United States for men as well as women. Young men as well as young women have no idea. Men of any age have no idea. This will change everything that's really at stake when you sexually uh, encounter someone. So this is going to have very dangerous consequences. It's going to have horrifying consequences to women who, as we know, will be having unsafe abortions. Um, the limitation of a woman's rights, not only to her body, but really, as I said, to empowerment and agency in her life. But I also, I just want to complete that by saying, I think there will be some good things from this too. As is often true, um, there's a line in the Bible, I can't remember what it is, something about what man intends for evil, God intends for good, that there's an awakening that will come from this. And I think there's an awakening going on today not only because the majority, the will of the majority of Americans was overturned today, um, not just a law, but also because people realize, women particularly realize, the government is not protecting your rights, and we're going to have to stand up and empower ourselves politically in a whole new way and on a whole new level, and I, I think that we will. We're speaking with Marianne Williamson. Um, one of the things that I saw today, which I thought was very telling, is uh, you have what is considered, I guess, like the outlier senators, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, Susan Collins, and I believe Lisa Murkowski, uh, coming out and saying that um, there is a legal uh, contention here regarding uh, particularly Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, who during their confirmation hearings declared that Roe is settled law. And of course, they went back on that, basically saying, you know, we were not going to confirm them had they said that they would look to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, if that is the case and there is a legal standing, uh, I mean, again, they're not going to get impeached. We know that. But there is legal standing to move forward with that effort if that is something that people want to do. My question is, if you can temporarily, temporarily eliminate the filibuster and codify Roe v. Wade right now with these senators coming over and providing at least a 51 vote that will say we will codify Roe v. Wade and that's that, I would think that that would be an angle that should be pushed right now. What do you think? 
Well, I think that's what Biden should have been talking about in his speech. That's what Nancy Pelosi should be talking about. That's what Chuck Schumer should be talking about. Biden shouldn't just be saying how stunned he is and giving his history a lesson. Nancy shouldn't just be reading a poem. She should be, they should be having with the American people the exact conversation that you, uh, that you just said. And instead, what are they telling us? They're telling us to make sure that we vote in November because that, that this is on the ballot in November. You know, Peter, maybe you did too. I don't know. I got one of those texts, one of those fundraising texts from Nancy, like an hour so, after it happened. Excuse me. She almost single-handedly elected Henry Cuellar in, against uh, Jessica Cisneros. And he is the last pro-choice Democrat. There's no moral authority there. If the Democrats do not show up on this, I think this will mark the end of serious political power uh, for the Democratic Party for years to come. And I think that they're in a very dangerous spot right now. And, and I think we talked about this a number of months ago. They really <laughs> are disconnected from reality. It's yeah. not like the November <laughs> election. Yeah, the November election is not like it's like, you know, two or three weeks from now. It's it's four months from now. It's it's like it's not around the corner. There is a lot that can transpire over the next several months. And you've already got Mr. I shouldn't even be on the Supreme Court anymore. Anyway, Justice Thomas coming out saying, well, now we have to look into other things like contraception and gay marriage. And it's like, if you think they're going to stop now, they're not stopping. They're going to try to go for the home run and then some. I couldn't agree with you more. And that is what Biden should have been saying. In his speech, he's like this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't know how people really get motivated because, again, I think we look a lot at the despair that a lot of people feel. How would you suggest that people kind of get motivated at this point? We've seen this movie played over and over again, and we know that the leadership, especially at the top of the Democratic Party, has to go because even in this moment, they're doing exactly what they shouldn't be doing versus what they really need to be doing. Well, not all of the primaries are over. Some of the primaries uh, still are ahead of us. I, people, I hope that people will go to CandidateSummit.com uh, where I have a list of endorses and they are non-corporate-backed candidates. And the thing is, Peter, as you well know, people who are non-corporate-backed candidates are not going to just go to Congress to go along and get along they're ready to fight. They're ready to make it happen. So every American has a congressional election coming up in November. And a third of us have senatorial elections coming up. There could not be a more important time uh, to get involved. This, any, any repair work here, any resistance to this insanity must include electoral politics. We, we really have to remember that. There's got to be an inside-outside strategy. And um, find out who's running. Get involved. See if you can help. Don't take any seat for granted. You know, you don't have to love everything that the Democrats have been doing, God knows. But it is true. If Hillary, for instance, had won in 2016, um, this would not be happening. She certainly, you know, Trump had three Supreme Court endorsements. So people say it's kind of a cliche to say, oh, but the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court. But it's a cliche because it's true. Um, uh, and I, I say that unapologetically. There's a lot of vote shaming going on uh, towards those of us who say, well, you still got to vote for a Democrat uh, until uh, certainly as opposed to these neo-fascists. And I think that 
it is um, neo-fascist what's going on here. This is a war against women. This is, like I said, this is more than just an attack on our bodies. It's an attack on our lives, attack on our freedom. You know, we're not a minority. It's bad enough when you attack the rights of a minority. This is not a minority. I love how, um, what's the name of that wonderful author who wrote The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, I, I don't even know. But again, there's so many similarities as to yeah. where we ended she up said, She said when this was originally leaked, she said, I wrote The Handmaid's Tale as a warning, as not a warning. An manual. Um, I can't, Margaret Outwood, was it Margaret Outwood who wrote it? I think so. Um, each of us, Peter, in other words, have something that we can do. And I hope that people will remember. Um, have the Democrats been weak? Absolutely. But are they hell of a lot better uh, than the Republicans on this? Absolutely. Um, and we must push back and we must not let um, uh, the great be the enemy of the good. We're speaking with Marianne Williamson. Um, I, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on uh, today to speak about this is because uh, I've been very adamant that the biggest problem with the Democratic Party is that they are completely co-opted by Wall Street. <clears throat> the biggest problem with the GOP is that they are completely co-opted by the evangelical right. As somebody who has been um, a spiritual advisor, somebody who's been involved in religion for a long time, can you speak to the biggest issues that exist right now regarding the evangelical right and sort of this uh, minority rule that they seem to be completely okay with and are not getting pushed back enough on? Because from all the responses I'm seeing, so much of this regarding us, and especially from men, regarding like what women should and shouldn't do with their body, they're using evangelical principles as a shield to say, well, this is uh, uh, you know a religious thing. And that's, and to me, I have a really, really big problem with how religion has been used as a weapon. And right now it's being used as the worst kind of weapon, as far as I can tell. Well, first of all, you said you thought that the GOP was not co-opted by corporate uh, power so much as by the evangelicals. I don't really agree with you on that because the money comes from the corporate power. I think evangelical Christians have been used as a pawn uh, by, by the GOP uh, more than the other way around. Um, many religions have nothing to do with God. Where there is not love, there is not God. You know, there's a line in the Bible. Uh, on that day, I will say, I never even knew you. There's a line in the Bible, God shall not be mocked. And that means he isn't. Where there's not love, there is not God. Now, I, I will say this. I do think there are many sincere evangelical Christians and others whose opposition to abortion rights stems from what is in their mind a deeply moral stand. And this is an important issue, Peter, because I think one of the reasons we lost on this issue is one of the reasons is because too many on the left have refused to acknowledge that it is a moral issue. I believe abortion is a moral issue, but I believe it's a moral issue that is a private issue. The government should have nothing to do with it. There are issues of private morality and there are issues of public morality. And when it comes to anything having to do with someone's body, anything that has to do with some sexuality, except with the one exception of sex with children, the government has no right to have any say whatsoever. And I do trust the moral decision making of the American woman. I find uh, casual abortion um, as much an anathema as, as as anybody does, and I think most pe most people in America do. 
This is an issue of respecting the fact that for the vast, vast majority, the vast majority of American women, this is a very, very difficult decision. And whether they contextualize it um, as a religious or a moral decision or not, they're dealing with it in their hearts. They're dealing with it in their conscience. So evangelical Christians have no monopoly, quite the opposite. Not only do they have no monopoly on moral consideration, but there are too many issues where, for instance, given their willingness to go along with policies that actually harm children that are already born, I would question whether they have any moral high ground on this and many issues uh, whatsoever. Why do you think they don't speak out against that? We had, uh, you know, we, we don't have, uh, we had the child uh, earned uh, tax credit taken away. Uh, we obviously don't have universal health care. We do not have a living wage. There are many things that could mitigate a lot of these uh, cycles of poverty being probably one of the primary reasons as to why uh, women do end up getting an abortion. Uh, yeah. It would seem to me that if you had a more caring society, then abortions would obviously be considerably less. But there's also this uh, sort of duality, if you will, it seems on the right, you know, religious right, where their concern is only to be pro-birth, not be pro-life. That That's how I see it. Yeah, no, it, it, it's absolutely true. And um, in, in so many cases where, you know, there's a, there's an emphasis on protecting a fetus, but not an emphasis on protecting a child, which seems outrageous to me. But I also think that we should note, Peter, there is a new generation of evangelicals coming up. Um, and th there, there's a new generation of them there with a, a lot of emphasis on anti-poverty work, even a lot of emphasis on the environment. So I don't think that we should brush all evangelical Christians, uh, you know, just as broad a brush because, well, first of all, as moral as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say, you have very little persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. And once again, I have found and I found this as a political candidate. I can respect someone's moral ambivalence on the topic of abortion. I really can. But I would find over and over again when I would say to someone, oh, it is a moral issue. I just don't think the government should be making that decision for a woman. This is an issue of a woman's private moral decision, not government. I can't tell you, Peter, how many people would say, oh, but you do get it's a moral issue, right? I would say, of course. And they would say, yeah, that's all I want to know, that you get that. Because so many people, particularly on the left over the last few years, refusing, seeing it as some slippery slope to even acknowledge that it was a moral issue, I think that that has been a terrible mistake in terms of winning hearts and minds in this country. Speaking with Marianne Williamson, I, no, no, please finish. You know when things changed? You know when we started losing this battle? Hmm. When photographs of fetuses became available? Because see, when I was a little girl, those pictures didn't exist. So the fact that there is some level of moral wrangling on this, this should not be disrespected. The issue is the government should not be deciding this issue for people. Um, and I think that uh, we would have had a lot more um, success on it if we had. Although it's to be noted that even the way it is now, over 60% of Americans did not want Roe v. Wade rescinded. 
repealed, overturned. Whether it has to do with this, whether it has to do with uh, Medicare for all, whether it has to do with environmental protection, whether it has to do with uh, college loans and college um, uh, tuition, uh, there are so many issues at this point where clearly our representative democracy is not representing the American people. We're speaking with Marianne Williamson. Um, you know, we see a lot of these changes that have been happening recently. And one would think we may be, you know, we talk about whether or not we're heading in the direction of a civil war. That obviously is uh, exceptional hyperbole in some instances. But sometimes, you know, you, you, you really don't know. We saw the attempted assassination on Justice Kavanaugh recently that was thwarted. You never know how much worse this is ultimately going to get. But now when we see that it's going to become a states' rights issue, and that is where a lot of these issues are heading, this is becoming a states' rights issue, I feel like we're becoming the divided states of America, truly a red-blue state uh, country. Like That's really what it feels like we're heading towards right now. And it seems that the people who have the most to say and have the most control are the ones who are okay with this. And to me, that's not anything that I would like to see. I want us to be the United States of America, but we can accept our differences. But we've moved to the point now, especially with the Supreme Court, where that's just not possible anymore. Now it's really become a weapon of division in this country that is uh, it's reaching a boiling point, as far as I can tell. I think you're right. We are, in fact, the disunited states of America. I don't know if you've read or listened to Stephen Marsh, um, but um, he argues that we should not underestimate Um some of the deep, deep hostility of millions of people, very well armed, who pretty much apparently seem to think that a civil war would be an okay thing. Um, I think that we need, as Martin Luther King would say, a politics of conscience. We need to inspire and harness uh, for political purposes, the decency and the dignity and the uh, universal moral values of what I do believe is the majority of Americans. This country does not belong to anyone as opposed to someone else. Um, People don't have to agree with each other in a free society. And this demonization of people whose only sin is that they do not agree with us is very, very dangerous. And I think all of us have to check our hearts on that. Um, Even those of us who are on the left, like when you were talking uh, a couple minutes ago about, uh, about evangelical Christians, I think that there are many among evangelical Christians who, um, Uh, are very open to moral persuasion on this issue and on many issues, but have felt that the Democratic Party derides and mocks and takes a very condescending attitude towards their faith. And I think that's wrong, and I think it's stupid. And we see a lot of people that have uh, really wanted to amplify their voices right now. And as you were alluding to uh, before, there is this uh, tendency to want to look backwards and talk about what people may have done right or wrong. Um, the, I don't even know what portion of the Democratic base you can really, or if it's even the base for that matter, but this issue with vote shaming is a really, really big problem. And in this moment right now, if you're really trying to rally people to the cause, telling them to basically get effed, if you will, because you didn't vote for Hillary or whatever, uh, that this is on you, even though 
We had 49 years to codify Roe v. Wade, and there were multiple opportunities in multiple Democratic presidential administrations where they had control of all three branches, including supermajorities in two of the most recent uh, Democratic presidencies, and it just wasn't done. Um, Why do you think there is this tendency to really overlook that and always punch down at progressives? It well. But there's also among progressives, there's also the other side of that, which is how many progressives are vote shaming us for voting for Democrats. Um, you know, I don't want to vote shame people for choosing to vote third party, but I don't want people who are going to either not vote or vote a third party to be vote shaming me. I think everybody should do what they feel moved to do. I did feel as someone who passionately supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, I absolutely voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, because once, you know, once it was over and we had Hillary Clinton versus uh, Donald Trump, of course I was going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And one of the reasons why I was passionate about voting for Hillary Clinton was exactly this, uh, the protection of Roe v. Wade and other things where you can't even compare uh, what she would do uh, to some of the things that he would do and did do. Um, so I think, you know, shaming, There, is, I th- do think there's such a thing as healthy shame, but vote shaming is not healthy shame. And um, I think that the condescension among some on the left, uh, when somebody just doesn't agree with them, uh, is um, is just as wrong-minded as, as condescension on the part of people on the right, uh, thinking that they have some monopoly on any values, uh, democratic or moral or any others. I think we have to focus on the fact that there are probably, geez, it's probably between 80 to 100 million people in this country that are not even politically active. They don't vote. They don't want to be involved. They see the system as completely broken and isn't going to serve them in any capacity. As somebody who, um, you know, has been floated as a potential uh, candidate in 24, I think it's important that we recognize that there are these millions of people out there that are politically homeless, I guess you could say. There's so much of this focus on, well, we we need to focus on the fact that we don't have all of our ducks in a row within the party infrastructure. Well, the truth of the matter is uh, over half this country identifies as politically independent and appealing to that base of voter, I think is even more important because like you said, you know, you were really gung ho about Bernie when it got to the general election. You voted for Hillary. But your ideals are much more in line with where the country is going right now. And like we said, there is a sort of this old guard of the Democratic establishment that refuses to relinquish power, even even an inch. They don't want to give up anything. And now we're faced with the ramifications of doing that. Something is simple. And I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but something is simple as not encouraging Justice Ginsburg to retire in 2014-2014, where there was ample opportunity for her to do so. Had she done so, President Obama would have had an excellent opportunity to replace her. Could have been Merrick Garland, could have been somebody else. But it certainly wouldn't have been somebody like Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Barrett. I believe that we really need to focus on how we bring more and more people in, because the way that we've been constantly doing things over the years has really pushed a lot of people aside. And that's kind of why I think we've ended up here. People have been told, get lost. Don't tell Ginsburg to step down. You better vote for Hillary. All of this stuff, it has it has the opposite effect of what they're intending, at least as far as I can tell. 
And I think that's where your voice plays a major role, especially for anybody who may, you know, there, there's so many people now who are saying, ah, forget the Democratic Party, I'm not going to get involved. Well, the more that happens, the more we're heading down this path. Yeah. Well, you know, even with Ginsburg not retiring, uh, Obama could have appointed Merrick Garland. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. now, and I'd always heard that Washington, D.C. was a bubble. It's more than a bubble. It's like a walled city. When you live here, you really do see these people don't have a clue what's going on out there. So what happened with the Obama White House and the Democrats during those years is they literally could not conceive that Trump might win. I mean, Trump, apparently Obama was saying till the night before the election, ah, Hillary will win. They just could, they just could, they thought, oh, we'll leave those to Hillary. Hillary will get to appoint the next one. Hillary will get to, no, 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 no. But this, if if they had been uh, wise enough to realize that Trump could win, they probably would have been wise enough for the entire eight years to know they needed to do more for the American people. And I think when you talk about the millions of people who do not vote and do not participate, I think sometimes what is read as apathy is just a kind of really quiet rage. The people feel it's the only way I can resist. It's the only way I can say fuck you is to not vote. Um, two things that I think are very important. One is obvious, uh, obviously the fact that uh, many of those people you're talking about have not seen government do anything for them, really. I mean, remember, Ronald Reagan's whole thing was that government is not the answer. Government is the problem. Convincing people that the uh, powers of government should not be used because they're so inept. And of course, all that was was a cover for trying to privatize everything and give all the resources of the country to the private to the public sector. Even uh, well, I would say equal to that, though, importance is Many of the people you're talking about, Peter, were not taught as children anything about American politics. You know, you have 11 states that don't even require half a year of um, American civics, American government, American history. So people there are so many ways that people are locked out. Uh, They're locked out economically. They're locked out socially. They're locked out politically. And when you start undereducating people or miseducating people, which is what so many people are arguing for now with their craziness about critical race theory, et cetera, then you've really got a problem on your hands. The founders were very clear. That's why they wanted, that's why they demanded a free public education, because they knew that only a population that was educated would be empowered appropriately to govern a great nation. And that's part of why so much money has taken away from higher, uh, possibilities for higher education, making it more and more difficult for people to become educated. There is a conscious uh, effort there, not only to turn people's um, uh, people's despair around trying to get an education into a profit center, but also at least an unconscious desire to keep people out of the game. Because when you're less educated, not only are you less able uh, to make money statistically, but are less likely uh, to care about politics and become participatory. I feel like if we had a, a better foundation in this country, like I said, a living wage, universal health care, uh, we had a robust climate initiative, I think a lot more people would be inclined to get involved. And right now, you know, all we've been hearing from our current president is that we can't do this and we can't do that. There's always an excuse as to why we can't do A lot of hand-wringing. How much longer do you think, considering how, uh, you know, 
we'll just say uh, a failing presidency of the highest order that uh, President Biden is sitting in right now. I mean, he's refused to do anything to try to rally millions of people, even though he has the authority to do it and chooses not to. Do you think it's simply a case of just the corporate special interest attachment that his administration has and is unable to basically do anything because it basically is this sort of interconnected system where if he were to go ahead and do that, then a lot of the money for a lot of these candidates running for office would just dry up. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just at the point now where I'm just thinking, Joe, do something. I don't, you know, I don't even try to analyze it anymore. I, I don't, you know, I can't look into his heart. Um, I think we, too many times, we excuse bad behavior on the part of politicians by saying, well, you know, they think this or they think that. I don't care what they think. You know, you can have, they're, they're, they are our employees and they should be judged by their performance. Touche. <laughs> they should be judged by their performance, but they're not being judged by their performance because their approval is abysmal. And yet they always manage to get reelected. So again, I think that also speaks to the fact, and, and this is something that I am a huge proponent of, is like you said at the beginning, we really need to be focusing on these local races and building this foundation. It is easier to just look at the shiny object at the top, whether it is the presidential races or the Senate races, or in many cases, the U.S. Congress. There's a lot of people who neglect the fact that it's so important to have a much stronger state house or even depending on the state, like here in Florida, for example, we're a very county strong state. So there is a lot of things that depending on what Governor DeSantis may or may not look to do, I think is going to have huge uh, ramifications on what ultimately does happen going forward. I don't think this is the end. I think that there's going to be a lot. There's definitely uh, this is a bad day, but but a lot of people are going to fight back, even if our politicians are not. Well, we were talking at the beginning about the changes that are going on inside people, you know, today. And I had said earlier uh, online that I hope that there are many women, particularly young women, who are really in their heads saying, that's it, I'm going to run. I, you know, one of the things the Republicans are very good at is they groom young people to become involved politically. I mean, the the fact that so much of Democratic leadership are people in their 80s, this is ridiculous. You know, I write books, right? So anybody, however many, I don't need to like leave book writing to make book writing more available to someone else who wants to write a book. But in politics, there are only so many slots. So when you have people, whether it's Eleanor Holmes Norton or Dianne Feinstein or any of them, with the exception of Bernie, because he's he's so special. But just as a general rule, these people will not move over and let a new generation uh, rise up. And um, that's it's, it's, it's a very big issue here. And once again, the cluelessness of Nancy when she was reading this poem today. I don't remember exactly what it was that you had said just now that I was responding to, but I was going to get somewhere else and I forgot. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's a lot to take in. It's a very tough day, but obviously one of the last things I want to address is um, 
like we talked about, uh, there are people who are looking for somebody to lead. Uh, your name, again, has been floated as a potential presidential candidate in 24, regardless of what President Biden chooses to do. If you were commander in chief right now and you had the opportunity to, let's say, address the nation this evening, what would you be doing and, and what would you be encouraging people to do? The power of the bully pulpit is immense. And it seems like uh, President Biden just either simply refuses to use it or just doesn't know how to use it properly. You know, I saw uh, New York's Attorney General Letitia James uh, on television today. She had she had it right. She was saying everything that her office is doing to push back against this, everything that she's doing to protect the people of, of New York. That's what I would be doing. I would be explaining to the American people what we're going to do about this. I would not be saying to the American people, just vote for us in November because the codifying row will be on the ballot when, in fact, they've had so many years to codify row. I would be uh, bringing together Democratic leadership and I would be discussing with the American people all of the options. President Biden said, I can't do this by executive order. And I do understand that. But there are other arrows in their quiver. And I would be not only bringing all the Amer the leadership together to discuss what those arrows are, but I would be explaining them to the American people and asking them to join with me in their state, uh, in their state races, in their uh, state activism, and in all of the ways that I would then delineate as their president and that I would highlight among so many activists in the country who are doing things so that together we, the majority of American people who know that this is wrong, will now push back about against this and override their override of a basic American freedom. Do you think the culture war plays any component in this? The culture war is central to all of this, of course. Yeah. And I think that uh, this is why uh, I think economic populism is so important, because it is a it's a unifying issue that doesn't allow people to be divided as easily as issues like a woman's right to choose, Second Amendment. Uh, Peter, no, please. I, I don't know if these people even exist in office now, but I certainly remember the term pro-choice Republican. Well, even Susan Collins, you know, this whole Susan Collins. I just can't believe he lied to me in that. You know, I'm, I'm starting to think that... You, it should disqualify you from federal office if you've never seen through somebody's lie. <laughs> I would also think, and this is the issue that never got talked about enough, if you really wanted to hammer away at one of the biggest issues uh, that I think anybody had regarding Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett in particular, they never tried a case before they got onto the Supreme Court. I mean, I don't know how much more obvious you had to make it that there was a hidden agenda oh, in getting them on the court in the first Millions of dollars were spent on this. I mean, I remember a, um, a, a hearing, a congressional hearing about a federal judgeship. The man had never tried a case. And clearly he had been schooled um, that when they said things to him, he just said, I don't feel like answering that. I don't, it was during the Trump years and he knew he didn't have to. This has been strategized over years. All of this about the federal judiciary, not only um uh, not only the Supreme Court, but all the way down. And they made it also very difficult. The Republicans made it very, very difficult for Obama uh, with his appointments. So um, I, we, we shouldn't uh, pussyfoot around this. Uh, we shouldn't pretend to ourselves that this is not a very, very difficult, uh, dark chapter in American history. But I think we need to dig down deep and remember that other American generations have 
been through difficult times. Um, women are under attack now, uh, as we have not been since the days of um, uh, when women didn't even have suffrage. But the women's suffragette movement rose up, pushed back. We had slavery in this country. The abolitionist movement pushed back. We had segregation in this country and uh, the civil rights movement pushed back. And those movements pushed back successfully. And uh, we have to find it within ourselves to rise above. Although the anger today is understandable, it can be transformed. It can be alchemized um, and turned into deep commitment and dedication and focus because there's a job ahead of us that must be done. And it's on us to do it. It's been a pleasure having you on this afternoon. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug uh, that you're working on right now or any uh, appearances that you may have coming up? Obviously, uh, you're definitely going to be in demand uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks, I'm sure. So uh, please, by all means, anything you'd like to share before you go. Oh, thank you, Peter. It's always nice to talk to you. And uh, I do have a sub stack. I will be writing later today about this issue. Uh, people can go to MarianneWilliamson.substack.com. Uh, it's free to subscribe. Um, and that's where I write my articles. Um, and um, I just appreciate the opportunity that you have me on. Well, it's really a, pri uh, a privilege to speak with you as always. Of course, we are, as we like to say on our podcast, small but mighty. Um, we're very grateful to uh, have obviously had you here. I am sure you're going to be uh, getting calls from a lot of people. Uh, Lord knows, like we talked about um, there's not a lot of voices out there that really know how to handle this moment and people are desperate for some type of direction. You are certainly one who is providing it. I definitely look forward to reading that Substack. Guys, if you're not currently subscribed to Marianne's Substack, please go to MarianneWilliamson.substack.com. Make sure you check it out. She's also written some phenomenal articles as well. And I'm sure you'll find wonderful interviews that she's had uh, on YouTube recently, including one that was really fantastic with none other than Harvey K. So, with that said, Marianne Williamson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All my best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So again, this is, a, this is a terrible day, but it's a terrible day that one has to wonder if we could have avoided. See, that's my argument. And the one thing that I find so interesting about the issue of a woman's right to choose is that there are so many men who feel that it's their place to tell a woman what to do. And I am the most unwoke person in the world of those who know me. But my God, God damn, will you please leave women the frick alone to do what they have to do? There are always going to be circumstances where women are either going to have to choose, whatever. Uh, it is their body. And I understand that there are people, uh, you know, that... Again, uh, if, if you're pro-life, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. If somebody's pro-life, that's that's their choice. Again, choice. Uh, I agree, Brazos. We all love Marianne and appreciate the kind words from a lot of you guys who enjoyed the interview. Uh, you know, Marianne's one of a kind. Um, and again, uh, I'm glad I got her early because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to clamor to get her on. Uh, it, it really... Uh, it says a lot about just how bad things are right now. Um, because even in this moment, even in this moment where <laughs> there was always this threat of, we're going to take it away. You're going to lose it. it uh, what are you going to do? And now it's gone. And the democratic establishment is doing exactly what they've always done. They have learned nothing. They have learned less than nothing. They are telling you that we do not care. If we lose in November at all, how do I know? 
Because if all they're doing today is telling you vote for us in November, my God, are they lost. I have an idea for you, President Biden. Just a thought. Just just a general thought. If you went on national television tonight and made some type of a plea to the American people, something saying that, you know what, I've really given this a lot of thought. We've got to cancel student loan debt and push for tuition free public college and trade schools. And imagine if he did it. Well, a couple of things would happen. His approval rating would go up, really up. Uh, the economy would be stimulated as a result of this ridiculous inflation that is all about corporate greed. And we know that their corporate greed when it comes to student loan debt is a very serious problem that we are not properly dealing with. So that would be something that would really make a big difference for a lot of people. And if that were the case and his approval rating went up, that would help the Democrats in the midterms. And if they were to win the midterms, maybe, just maybe, they would have an opportunity to do even more regarding codifying Roe v. Wade. But right now, they're not doing anything. They're not. This is exactly what one would have expected. And I didn't even get a chance to show uh, my text message because I deleted it earlier. I've gotten texts already asking for more money, saying, hey, you got to help us. Uh, Roe v. Wade got overturned. We got to elect non oh, not not even, Well, of course, not non-corporate. We've got to elect just Democrats. You mean like pro-life Democrats like Henry Cuellar down in San Antonio, Texas? Is that the one you're talking about? Because I just want to make sure I know which Democrats you're talking about. Nancy Pelosi giving a giving, reading a poem to let me read you a poem about about the America. What we're gonna do? Oh my God! It's it's a clown show at this point. It's so bad. And so for those of you who are still here, you know I, I really appreciate your support. We really appreciate your support. You know Jen put a statement together that we're going to post on social media uh, for uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook shortly. Um, you know, Jen is out in, uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, I, I, I believe, I, I don't know for sure if she's going to be, I, I know that there's going to be tons of rallies today. Um, I have an engagement that I have to go to later. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bad day. It's, it's a bad day, but it's a day that again, could have been avoided 49 years of codifying Roe v. Wade and it wasn't done. And there were multiple opportunities that it could have been done. And President Obama coming out today talking about, oh, it's such a terrible day. Well, hey, I mean, you campaigned on codifying Roe v. Wade back in 2007. And in your first 100 days, when you had a supermajority with a filibuster-proof Senate, you said, yeah, we're not going to do anything about that. I wonder why. Because you knew it was a fundraising goldmine and you had to use it. Thank you, Kim, for the support. Really appreciate it. You know, the truth is, and I'm just going to be honest here, Kim. I'm going to be honest for a lot of you guys. I don't think protecting Roe v. Wade is enough to get people to vote at all. I just don't because it's not an economic issue. You'll get people to vote for sure, yes. But My God, if you're not attaching Roe v. Wade to some type of an economic benefit that people can get as a result of them doing something, think about this. 
you know, we put out a post on social media the other day that really got a lot of traction. Our minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. You know what percentage of America lives below the poverty line and is on welfare? One out of five. That's a lot. Do you know what the minimum wage is in Australia? In their country, it's $21.38, which translates to just under 15 bucks an hour in the United States. Do you know what percentage of their country is on welfare? Below the poverty line. It's less than 5%. It's directly correlated. It's all connected. So if you went out and made an active push right now for a living wage in the United States, you think that, that wouldn't change things? Of course it would. But as my good friend Jordan Chariton at Status Quo likes to say, we live in the United Corporations of America, and they control what you can get and what you can't get. And frankly, what you can get is very, very little. You get very, very little in this country. They don't even want you to have a pot to piss in. I'd rather you drink it. Drink your piss. Because that's kind of how it is. Sandra, in certain parts of the United States, yes, $30 an hour is what you would need. In the biggest cities, the most expensive cities, that is what you would need. Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, Boston, New York City, and possibly Philadelphia. The fact that it's even that high is crazy. And again, limited housing, no rent control, and even if there is, <laughs> they're rewriting the laws every day to make sure that doesn't change. It, the system's broken. Like, I can get upset and enraged about it, but no, the system's broken. This is the matter of, you know, who's going to pick up the slack? Who can lead people? Uh, I personally think, and Australia has universal health care. If the Aussies can do it, so can we. Good day, mate. Put another shrimp on the barbie. You know, kind of like Jim Carrey would say in Dumb and Dumber. That's not a knife. That's a knife. <laughs> Yeah, we absolutely can afford these things. We know we can. And that's sort of the political odyssey that I think a lot of people have experienced over the last, you know, five years plus. You know, we're, we're staring down the barrel of massive change that is only going to come uh, through a very, very dark moment. And this is one of them. Don't think it's over yet. No, this can get much worse. And Scott's right. I'm not going to put up his, his message because he cursed. Marianne cursed too. I don't know if that's going to hurt our monetization. I hope it doesn't. But nevertheless, uh, of course, Rob. And again, the reason why you were notified 50 minutes late is because this notification probably went out as soon as Marianne was off the podcast. That's how this works. I'm not stupid. Everyone knows, everyone knows that the game is rigged. 
the game is totally rigged. It's totally, totally rigged. But it's rigged for the American people not to get what they need. Bernie and Trump were always correct. The difference between the two of them is that Bernie actually cares about the people benefiting. Trump just cares about himself benefiting. And if the people benefit as a result of him getting what he wants, then that's just a after effect of, of sans circumstance. Not that that was what was intended. Certainly hope people understand that that's what it is. But as I like to always point out, so much of what we have today in politics, it's not complicated stuff at all. None of this stuff is complicated. Most of the stuff is common sense. Everyone thinks that this is all, this is all the progressives' fault. This is all the progressives' fault. If only they had listened. If only they had voted for Hillary Clinton, even though their vote wouldn't have made a difference. It's the independents who vote a certain way. This isn't Democrats voting a certain way. Do people forget about Democrats for McCain? I don't. That didn't make a difference. Obama was too popular. But what if it did make a difference? And Bernie is without fault. Bernie made a number of mistakes. He's still making them. He's not fighting the way that he needs to or the way that he should. And the sad truth is, if Trump was president, there would have been a, a much brighter light on this problem than there is with Joe. They've gone to such great lengths to protect him. And it's only hurting this country. It's like, you know, Marianne said, when you're in D.C., you're not in a bubble. You're in a fortress. It is even worse than you think. It really is uh, the canyon walls in so many ways. Yeah, people will wax poetic towards Trump because things have gotten so bad under Joe, you could legitimately make the argument that it is worse now. I don't know what's going to happen in 24, but the wrinkle of Roe v. Wade getting overturned really makes things very, very interesting right now because of Governor DeSantis. Florida is a Dixie South state. It is going to be very much like the other states you're seeing, especially in the heartland in the South. Missouri, obviously, is the one that just came up today. Uh, DeSantis is not going to benefit politically if he goes after Roe v. Wade. He knows this. That's why he's been silent on it. And it's going to, again, there are going to be cases, it's going to happen fast. It's, if there's a state where it's going to happen fast, it's going to be in Florida, where you are going to have people that are going to be getting abortions, trying to get abortions, will get them, will get caught getting them, and there will be attempted legal ramifications as a result. The question is, will Governor DeSantis direct his attorney general to move forward with abortion cases? Up to this point, DeSantis's political acumen has been exceptionally well-timed and never puts himself behind the eight ball far enough where he starts to lose support. But now comes a very interesting set of circumstances. The presumed nominee on the Democratic side for governor in Florida, Charlie Crist, 
has called for the impeachment, as I and Jen were calling for earlier, of Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. They lied. I mean, they did lie. You have it on recorded video where they said Roe v. Wade is settled law. Apparently not. At least enough to get you confirmed. What will Governor DeSantis do? That will be very interesting. I don't know. I don't know what Ron is going to do, but he's in a tough spot now. Oh, boy. Because they're going to come at him with everything they got. They're going to use this as a wedge issue. If the Democrats are smart, they'll figure out a way to really push it for all it's worth. Because, again, I don't think it's going to affect. I don't think it's going to affect Ron's ability to get reelected governor. This has more to do with whether or not he thinks he's going to run for president and win. That's going to be the big, big question. Jimbo, I know you feel that way. I know you think Ron's in a tough spot. Let me tell you something. He may not be in a tough spot in Florida. That's not what I'm saying. But we all know, especially after and again, if anyone doubts that Ron DeSantis is running for president in 24, he said, I am not seeking Trump's endorsement for governor of Florida. That's all you need to know. That's it. And end. DeSantis needed Trump in uh, 2018. That's for sure. He was not going to be elected governor. He wasn't even going to win the primary against Adam Putnam, who was the commissioner of agriculture at the time. Putnam absolutely would have been the nominee. And he was the biggest big sugar whore I've ever seen. And we've had plenty. But he was as bad as, as, as Rick Scott, if not worse. But then I totally came in. I totally came in and I endorsed that DeSantis guy, he was a great guy. I told him he would be governor, and then he became governor. It was really great. But now your Frankenstein monster is on his own, and he doesn't need you anymore. So if Ron has any intention of running for president, he's going to have a lot of questionable decisions that he's going to have to think about. Is he really going to have his attorney general? Because the buck stops at Governor DeSantis. Everybody knows that. He runs the state. If Governor DeSantis tells the attorney general you will not prosecute abortion cases, then that will be the way it goes. But if Ron does allow that to go forward, and we know it will, uh, if cases come, because there will be abortion cases that will get to the attorney general's desk. uh, This is the third most populous state in the country, and it is essentially a red state at this point. 30 electoral votes, mind you. Talk about prime electoral real estate. That's why things for the Republicans are not nearly as bad as many people think. 70 electoral votes between Florida and Texas alone. That's a lot. And so what I would say, you know, again, a lot of people are thinking, well, what do we do now? How do we get to the drawing board and really start to assemble what we can do going forward? Sean, just rewind. Just rewind. I'll be off. Don't worry. You won't have to listen to me for more than another minute. In my opinion, I I think Governor DeSantis is going to walk a very tight rope right now. You know, he had his uh, he had a victory uh, with the net metering bill that he never should have had. Um, that's the Democrats' fault. Three Democratic state senators voted yes 
on net metering, which is a bill for FPNL, which screws people who want to use solar. Crazy. But he vetoed it. And now he looks good. And you know what? DeSantis has had a fairly decent record on the environment. If you have a Republican who has a decent record on the environment, you have no chance. <laughs> like that's forget it. It's like one of the one of the things that the Democrats are really supposed to be able to have a lane on is the environment. And with DeSantis, they don't have it. Especially when you have so many Democrats in this state who ready, willing, and able, including, and I will say this, kudos to Charlie Crist, who has refused. I he has he has my respect, he has Jen's respect. We have been very adamant about the fact that Charlie Crist has been walking the walk regarding the environmental movement, particularly when it comes to taking their corporate special interest money. Nikki Freed, not so much. That's a big that's a big problem. I'm just I'm really, you know. We are not doing what we need to do at the grassroots level. We are not building that infrastructure that needs to be there at the state and local level. You gotta, you really, there are so many people who want to run for office, but they want to run for an office that is completely unattainable. And I know there are people who are going to hear this. No one should be deterred from running for office, but my God, if people are running for offices that they have no chance of winning, they have no infrastructure, they have no backing from any labor organizations, progressive activist organizations that actually get involved in the electoral process. If you're not capable of fundraising, if you are not capable of building that grassroots army that gets out there and knocks on doors, phone bags, texts, and does everything in terms of building that infrastructure. And finally, if you're not a candidate that people are enthusiastic about, you're not going to win. You're not even going to do anything. All you're going to do is waste time. And we don't have time to waste anymore. People who want to ascertain to go after the, the congressional seat. Again, do you know what it costs to win a congressional seat? We did a pretty solid job of, of Jen running against Wasserman Schultz. We were able to get just under 30% of the vote in a pandemic with just under $400,000, half of which came in in the last few months. Realistically, realistically, and I'm not saying it's the same everywhere, but realistically, if you're not able to run for president and raise president, excuse me, president of the Del Boca Vista Club, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not able to run for Congress, and raise at least a million dollars, you have no chance. Your first run, if you're able to raise maybe a few hundred thousand and build an infrastructure, you can really start to do an amazing job in growing and becoming something impeccably strong. It doesn't always happen. But what about city council, county commission, school board, a lot of races that you don't even have to be in a political party. Lord knows everyone's tired of the Democrats. Well, if you want to run in a nonpartisan race, that's the way to do it. It was actually over 28%, Mal. It was a little under 29. We did, we did okay. Well, 
And again, remember this, you know, Debbie was able to get where she was able to get through 30 years of infrastructure building within the county, having a lot of the money. And when you don't have name recognition, when you don't have a robust operation, you know, if we had, let's say a million dollars raised, there's no question that it would have been a lot closer. And I don't think we're as far off as one might think. We did. We worked very hard. I, I you know, I, I gave it everything. So did you and so did a number of other people. And that's what it takes because we ran for office in a place where it's as tough as any place you're ever going to run because they literally lock up everything. The Democratic Party, they are desperate to, to hold off this fight. And they, they cultivate everything locally. Everyone turned us away. Nobody locally, I mean nobody, even people that I was friendly with who would talk behind the scenes, you know how that goes. People who are high up in the Democratic Party who said, I hope you take Debbie out, but I'm not gonna say anything about it publicly. The Democratic Party's infrastructure is old, archaic, worn down, corrupt to the teeth, corporate owned and dying a slow death every day. It's not going to last because too many people are hip to the game now. Imagine the difference that one would make if Jen ran for Congress again in 2024. No guarantees yet, but if she did, think about where you'd be starting from. We might have $400,000 in the first few months. We might have a legitimate operation to run and win. Yeah, Jimmy screwed us. So did a lot of other people. I don't care. You find out who's really in it and who's not. There's always going to be people who are going to fight and who are just going to, you know, say a couple of good, you know, kind words and but are never, ever going to take on uh, what needs to be taken on. There is a lot to be said. You know, our slogan in 2020 was a time for courage. Well, it takes a lot of courage to run for office, to believe in a cause and actually fight for it, in spite of the fact that a lot of people around you are not going to have the courage to speak up and do the same thing. You're on your own. When the water in the pool is comfortable, then a lot of people get in. When it's not comfortable, they don't even know what the temperature of the water is, they're not going to get in the water. People are just not going to take a leap of faith. It's, it stinks that it's that way, but that's how it is. You can't let it get to you, Mel. I don't let it get to me anymore. Because history and the issues that we're fighting for are on our side. They're not on her, they're not on Debbie's side, they're not on any of their sides. The learning experience is so very necessary to figuring out exactly what needs to be done. Uh, it takes time. And I know a lot of people are impatient. I get it. People are running out of patience. And that's why the dam is breaking. A lot of people are done with electoral politics. Um, but you have to remember, there's millions of people who are not even paying attention to what's going on. They're not even involved. They just kind of feel like it, there's no point. It's a waste of time. And I get that. I totally understand their sentiments. And 
I definitely feel for them for sure. Um, but I'm going to keep fighting. And I think a lot of you are going to keep fighting. And that's great. You know, that's what we need to do. We need to keep at it. We cannot just give up arbitrarily because there is too many things at stake. But we have to get smarter about how we do this. If you tell somebody, I'm running for the U.S. Congress, and, and by the way, it's going to cost me a million dollars to be viable and competitive to win, most people are going to look at you and say, nah, sorry, it's not going to happen. But what if you ran for a city council seat or a county commission seat? In which case, maybe you only have to raise $20,000 in order to be viable, compete, and win. Well, you know what? You have a lot more people who would be interested in helping you out. And there's a hell of a lot more seats out there that need to be filled. We have state house seats in the state of Florida that don't even go challenged. They just let them go. And in a number of places, they're competitive. What about the fact that you have ample opportunity to run as an independent and really cause a friction? I don't see that happening, especially in these super red districts. Well, what if a true libertarian who was running on civil liberties, ending the wars, uh, legalizing cannabis, I keep telling them all the time, you know, the most fiscally responsible thing to do is to have universal health care and a living wage. Because if you had those things, you'd have a hell of a lot less people on the government welfare bill. That is, again, there are so many ways that we could be effectively attacking this system. And yet so many people just either don't listen or, or don't get it. Anybody who runs for local office, especially city commission, county commission, school board, and state house, I ha you, you have my respect. It's very hard to do it. it. It's not sexy, and it doesn't get the attention that U.S. Congress, state Senate, U.S. Senate, and president get, or even mayor of a big city. But they are vital cogs in the equation. And exactly. Rob, Think about it. How do you not get somebody who isn't a, an independent or a libertarian in very red Polk County out there running against the corrupt system? It would just seem like common sense to me. So when you have the worst elected Democrat in the state house in the state of Florida, I know there's a lot of the worst elected Republican, excuse me. And I know there's a lot of bad ones, but Randy Fine up in Brevard County, he's got to take the cake. I mean, he really sucks the big one. And yet he's being challenged by a Democrat in a plus 30R district. This is no different than the three grifters running for Congress as Democrats in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district 14 in Georgia. They have no chance of winning. They're not even good. They're not going to get within probably 40 points, but they're raising a lot of money. You want to talk about wasting money in politics? Holy God smack. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in a plus 27 R district. What in the hell are you doing? And shame on anybody who falls for this. How, how do you not see the grift? It's so obvious. The millions of dollars that's been raised, how, how effectively that could be utilized in other ways. Help, helping out Senator Warnock against uh, Herschel Walker could be huge. 
And that's going to be a tight race. And I think Gov- I think Senator Warnock, uh, had, you know, again, it's going to be tough. But of all the I think I think Senator Warnock has a better chance of keeping his seat than Stacey Abrams does of taking over uh, for uh, Governor Kemp. Hell, at this point, you probably would take a split if you could get it. But, you know, for me, what I keep saying is we have to get much better at strategy. Even the people that are here, that are on the political right, and we have a handful of them in the chat right now. I have no doubt that a lot of them feel a certain way about certain issues, but you'd be surprised how many things we can find common ground on if we just focused on that. And we could really cultivate a lot of support. Jimbo, conservative, who's here? No healthcare system is perfect, but don't tell me that people would prefer the American healthcare system to the Canadian system. There is no comparison. If you are fortunate enough where you have a lot of money and you are able to get it, a, a level of private care that isn't part of the government. Hell, I've said many a times, I would have no problem in the United States if you wanted private supplemental insurance, if you want to spend more money. But the idea that we don't have a basic healthcare system without for-profit middlemen in between us and our doctors, where you can go to the hospital, where you don't think that people should not go bankrupt. You know, we're the only country in the world that goes bankrupt from healthcare costs. You do know that, don't you, Jimbo? And other people that are here? I certainly hope so. These things are so common sense, I don't know how anyone just doesn't see it. And yes, if I was to run for office, that is what I would say. So much, if not all of our issues, are all common sense solutions waiting to be had. Cigna, Aetna, United, Blue Cross, they have no reason to exist. They provide nothing that can't be provided between you and your doctor and the hospital you go to. They have nothing to offer of any value. And you're getting screwed left and right by them every day. No one spends more money lobbying Capitol Hill than private insurance and big pharma. And why? Because we don't need them, but they have to continue the grift. Now, thankfully, a lot of people are starting to see through that. Jimbo, here's the difference, my libertarian friend. We're not talking about government-run healthcare. We're talking about government-funded healthcare. That's what all of the well-developed countries have. We're not talking about China. We're not even talking about Cuba. We are talking about where our tax dollars are allocated. And don't give me the BS about how taxation is theft. I ain't going to have it. And that is extreme right libertarianism, which is not really libertarianism. It's anarchism and borderline fascism. It's kill or be killed. I understand there's a lot of people who believe in that. Ron? Don't ever compare universal health care to Obamacare. Obamacare is a joke compared to universal health care. What no one ever talks about regarding universal health care versus what Obamacare is, Obamacare is the biggest wet hand job 
that private insurance ever could have hoped for. And the American people bought it like a bunch of fools. I bought it like a fool for a brief period of time, but eventually I figured it out. The only good thing that really came out of Obamacare was that it took away pre-existing conditions. And that is a big deal. And that meant a lot for a lot of people. And I don't want to downplay that because it probably saved countless lives. Think about how many people who had health care and were taking care of themselves had costs go up exponentially as a result of Obamacare. They didn't ask for that. But if we had a universal health care system, like a Medicare for all, where we eliminate the for-profit middlemen in between us and our doctors. My God, if you had any idea how much money we would be saving and everyone would have coverage and no one would go bankrupt again. And again, Jimbo and Ron, this isn't a question of whether or not anything is free. No, it's free at the point of service. The doctors are paid through our tax dollars. And in a free market system, which we would have, the doctors would get paid based on their performance. So if they're a great doctor, they are going to have a backlog of, I don't know, two, three months, like most doctors down here in like Boca Raton and Delray Beach have anyway. That's not going to change because they're great doctors. They're still going to make high six, seven-figure incomes. That's not changing. Most doctors do not want private insurance because of all the paperwork and bureaucratic nonsense that they have to deal with. A libertarian perspective when it comes to living wage and health care is absolutely needed. This idea that we're trying to make it a government-run system is crazy. And you know it. And you're just lying if you think that this is what we're not trying to do here. I understand. You don't want to give health care to certain people. I get it. But you know what? We kind of have to live on this planet together. So there's going to be people who are going to get services that you don't like. And you might get services that other people don't like. But you know what? If we can eliminate these price gouging scum suckers that do not have a right to exist in our system anymore... My God, anyone who thinks. Jimbo, again, this will save an unconscionable amount of money. You can't even see it. It's so big. Why do you think they lobby Capitol Hill so hard in both parties not to push forward anything to change in the healthcare system? Because it's a cash cow of the highest order for the very very few who make a killing off it. That's what it is. And I know people who make a lot of money off of it. A lot. And if we did the right thing, which is basically say you want to go to your doctor, but you don't want to have to pay co-pays or premiums or deductibles, they have no reason to exist. It's a made up thing. My God, if you're a libertarian, this should be the thing you scream the loudest about. This is the real price gouging. This is the screw you with a sharp object. That's what it is. That's all it's ever been. 
Now, if you want to tell me that there are certain things that you don't agree with in regards to some of the progressive policies that certain people uh, you don't think you agree with, okay, we can have a conversation about certain elements of the tax code. I'm fine with that. That's a legitimate conversation to have. But if you're going to defend in any capacity the fact that businesses don't pay a living wage and the fact that we don't have universal health care, that is why this country is going to hell. As much as any reason, 21.3% of this population is in poverty and on the government dole. We have a slave wage, but when you compare it to other parts of the world, like Australia, even if you don't think Australia is perfect, they have a living wage and they have universal health care and less than 5% of their population is in poverty and on the government dole. If that doesn't spell it out, I don't know what does. You have probably close to 70 million people in this country who suffer every goddamn day and have to live on the government dole in some capacity. Wouldn't it be a lot better if that number was, I don't know, 10 to 15 million? It's still a high number, but my God, if we could wipe 50 million people off of that system, think about that savings. Think about how much that would mean. It's got nothing to do with population at all. At all. It has nothing to do with it. In fact, when you have a bigger population, you have more money within the pool. That's how it works. The fact that a small country can get away with it tells you all you need to know about what a big country is capable of doing. Jimbo, Ron, I'm telling you all, you're never going to have a perfect system. And I think universal basic income would have mitigated a lot of the problems that we suffered through over the last two years in clue of the pandemic. People would have had better choices. I think the argument could be made that UBI makes a lot of sense in dire circumstances. When people really need the help, they should be able to get it. It's essentially social security for all. It could have been called that. You know, Andrew Yang was, um, was an amazing supporter of our campaign. He really meant a lot. And the Yang gang did an amazing job. They really helped us out. There are good people out there, guys. Don't think that there's not. Sean is a conservative or libertarian. Jimbo, Ron. And we can have these conversations. And you know what? Deep down, I think they know what I'm saying is, is the correct answer. And that's not to say that we don't need fiscal conservatism in the United States. We do. We spend money like it's going out of style. And we spend it on the wrong things. I don't want to hear another fossil fuel company get a subsidy of any kind. They don't need it. Why do you think we don't have a robust, non, you know, a, a green energy grid that's being built in the United States right now? The reason we don't have it, quite simply, is because the government is overrun by corporate special interest money. And fossil fuel money is right near the top, along with private insurance and big pharma. That is why you don't get anything. That is why we don't have hybrid cars. 
Now they're just building electric cars with huge batteries that are going to result in bigger problems because we don't mitigate the problem. If we can't eliminate the, the, the ability to drive an internal combustion engine right now, you know, you have a Toyota Prius that in some cases gets up to 60 miles to the gallon. Well, you know what? Every damn car should get 60 miles to the gallon. The only reason you have five, six dollar a gallon gas right now, seven, eight dollars in some places. Why do you think you have that? You think this is because of Putin? You think this is because of uncontrollable inflation? No, this is corporate greed. That's why you have it. No one controls the fossil fuel industry. They control us. They run the show. They charge us 10 bucks an hour, if they get 10 bucks a gallon, if they get away with it. And in some cases, they're going to try and because Biden is so unbelievably spineless and corrupted by the system he's been in for 50 years, he's not going to do anything. And it isn't just about him. It's about all of the people that are interconnected within this corrupted system that take all of that money. And if they didn't do their bidding, they wouldn't get any of it. It would just go away. It would disappear like that. That's how much they got him by the balls, baby. Oh, they really got him there. Let me tell you. I like you, Ron. I think you. I, I, I think you're trying to be good faith about this, but there is no sixty percent tax, and anybody who tells you that is lying through their teeth. This isn't Scandinavia. We're not going to have a completely drawn out system where you have all of these endless amounts of services covered, top to bottom, almost a cradle to grave type situation. Ricky, thank you so much. Really means a lot. And for those of you who are here, if you like our content, if you appreciate what's being discussed today, whether the conversation I had with Marianne or you like the work that Jen and I do, we would really appreciate it if you did become a patron as little as $5 a month. Remember, the money that comes to this podcast does not go into our pockets as profit. We are transforming politics into service and we are helping local state, and even some cases federal, non-corporate candidates get elected to office. We are also involved with local community efforts, such as beach cleanups, community gardens, homeless care packages, you name it. We're out there helping in whatever way we can. As a matter of fact, I don't know if they're hiring anymore, but our good friend Sheila Sherfulis McCormick, congressional representative of Florida's 20th congressional district, is currently hiring canvassers. We did our effort to make sure that that work got out there, let everybody know that they are looking for people that can help. Paying 17 bucks an hour, 25, 30 hours a week up until the primary, it's basically two months. There's a lot of opportunity uh, to gain some valuable experience, make some good money. You know, we're doing everything we can. I really, uh, I get very passionate about this, but... I also have a lot of optimism. I do. Support them all, Sandra. Support them all. Free Assange, free Donziger, free free Pope. Support 
your constitutional right to free speech, even if you don't like the person. As Noam Chomsky once said, I don't support the Constitution because I want to protect the speech that I like. I do it to protect the speech I don't like. And that's how it is. Certain forms of green energy is run on coal and gas. And that's what we're trying to change. It's one of the biggest problems that we face. Yes, I am, Charlie. Uh, Rob. Um, I think that, um, th that this, is a, this is a huge issue. If we're going to have a green economy, we have to be honest about what it's going to take to get there. And we have to be very, very clear that there's a lot of problems with currently how uh, a lot of this stuff is uh, harvested, if you will. We do have solutions. There's plenty of them. There's hemp. That never gets talked about. There's biofuel. That is an easy solution, especially when it comes to jet fuel. You want to talk about something that could really help. Green any green economy is not a few decades away. You can have it in a few can have it in a few years easily. The president has the authority to declare a climate emergency, which we're living in. Bet you didn't know about the 11 million people that just got displaced in India and Bangladesh. Yeah, that's never going to hit the news. So if you want to deal with the problem, you have hydroelectric power that's easily obtainable. There is so much power that can be obtained through water. But we destroy water through hydraulic fracturing. And I think everybody can agree. We don't need fracking wells on our properties. You'd much rather have a solar field. Wind farms. Jimbo? Regardless of what you think about climate change, here's one thing that's indisputable. You can't drink oil and you can't eat money. If you have contaminated water, like so many places throughout this country have, and the mitigating solution is to use some form of clean energy in order to, to, to eliminate that issue, I think we can all agree that it's much better off using that technology for that reason alone. And regardless of whether or not you think we have any control over whether or not, again, uh, I do believe that nuclear version four, which is supposed to effectively mitigate a large part of this problem, uh, everyone talks about nuclear waste. The only issue with nuclear really in the, in the version four or, or generation four uh, nuclear system that is that is being built uh, is how long it will take. But if in fact our transitional fuel, and again, and again, where what you have to remember is that version four of of the nuclear system is supposed to eliminate uh, nuclear waste. 
That's really what it's about. And so if that were, if that is the case, then having nuclear as a substitute for natural gas and coal is an absolute must. That's where I stand. And again, like I said, there's many different ways that climate, that climate change, climate crisis, whatever you want to call it, is actually affecting our lives. But I would say no more detrimental than when it comes to our drinking water. <laughs> yeah, we're not dealing with three-eyed fish, hopefully, guy. <laughs> That's a great idea, Mallory. Uh, please, um, if you could email her information to generate to the generational change at gmail.com email, that'd be great. There are solutions. No, we have a lot of problems and there are a lot of solutions. And we know that. And it's always good to have these conversations that I think are very necessary. Because the truth is, we are a United States of America. For how much longer, I don't know. Um, I didn't even think I would go on this long, but this chat's been very entertaining and I'm very grateful that all of you guys are here. Um, I certainly hope that you've enjoyed the conversation with Marianne as well as my musings after the fact. Fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who wish that there were more solutions than what we are faced with as of right now. And so with that said, uh, got to keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> Remember once again, patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month could be $10 a month or $25 a month, whatever floats your boat, <laughs> I think it's always good to have a little bit of fun. Thank you very much, Paul. It means a lot. We're very glad to see all of you here today. Uh, we will obviously be back on Monday. Um, but yeah, this was a big day. This was a big, uh, this was a, a not so good day. Uh, but obviously we have a lot of work ahead of us. And again, keep fighting the good fight. Smash the like button get involved. Uh, all of you today have been really, really great, really tremendous, incredible people. So thank you so much. And we'll see you on Monday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.